On Sunday mornings, we have been going through the book of 1 Peter together, so we'll continue in our study there this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to join me there in your Bibles, and while you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have a few copies. They can give you one if you need a copy of God's Word. And we just began our study together here in 1 Peter. We left off in verse 5. This morning we're going to continue where we left off at the end of verse 5 right there at the beginning of verse 6, and we'll go from verse 6 down through verse 9. If you're turned to 1 Peter chapter 1, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. And Father, we <clears throat> just humbly ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding as we study the Word of God this morning. Thank you for a chance to worship you, Lord, to sing and express our praise to you. And we want to continue now in an attitude of worship in spirit and in truth as we look to the truth of your word and your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts and to speak to us that which we need to hear. Bless your word, Lord, and teach us through your Spirit's ministry this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to consider this morning, personally, what is honestly, in your estimation, one of the most valuable things that you possess? I'm sure as I ask that, maybe one, two, three different things come to your mind, but what is one of the most valuable things that you possess? I can tell you it honestly may not be the thing that comes to your mind because one of the most precious things that every one of us possess universally, that we all possess despite who we are, what our background or status is in life, one of the most precious things we all possess is our capacity to exercise faith. A capacity that God has given equally to every breathing soul on this planet. The ability to exercise faith. And in light of that, can I ask a question? What if the best way for your faith, my faith, to be developed was actually to experience and go through personal struggles. Would that be worth it? Would it be worth it if one of the best ways to develop and cultivate faith in your soul towards God was actually to go through struggles in your life while on this earth? Well, if you took notice as we read the section together this morning, our passage deals with those very things, the experience of trials problems, struggles, difficulties, the experience of trials and the value of faith. 
That's what our passage is zeroing in on, the experience of trials and the value of faith. Now, remember our background in the last verses we looked at. Peter has been describing the greatness of our salvation. And he talked about the glorious heavenly hope that we all have. And now he's going to remind us in the midst of that, that as we wait for that glorious inheritance and that hope of heaven to be with the Lord forever in his glory, that the greatness of God's salvation does not remove the grind and the struggle and the challenges of everyday life of living here on this earth in this present life. And to keep proper perspective, we must, and I emphasize must, we must realize and then continuously remember a few things. Number one, that we live on a fallen earth, cursed by sin since the Garden of Eden. Everything around us is cursed and in a sense polluted and tainted by the presence of sin on this world. So we live in a world that is a fallen earth. We live in failing bodies as the result of sin. Bodies that are aging and, and deteriorating and have sickness and struggles and ultimately experience death. In fact, from the moment a person is born, technically they're dying. It may be different for every one of us and the duration may be the same and that may sound pretty pessimistic, but it's honestly pretty biblical. From the moment a person is born, sickness and sin and death is there and we gradually begin to die so we live in a fallen world we have failing bodies and then add into that because we're sinful we're all faulty people now to me i'm not a mathematician but i can do the math with that real quick fallen world failing bodies faulty sinful people when you add those things up what are they equal to problems trials difficulties, challenges in this life, of course, along the way to our journey home, we're going to face problems and tribulations. In fact, Paul himself, in Acts chapter 14, when he was ministering in the area of Lystra, he healed a man who was sick there, seeing he had faith. Paul prayed and he received healing. Paul then preached the gospel to those who were present in that community. And then afterwards, some people sort of raised up some trouble in regards to the Apostle Paul's ministry. They ultimately stoned Paul and left him for dead. So he was brutally stoned, left for dead at the outskirts of the city. It says the disciples, the believers, gathered around him, probably prayed for him. The Lord raised him back up. And instead of Paul taking the first Amtrak out of town, Paul does the exact opposite. He comes back from this brutal beating and he marches right back into the city of Lystra and he goes right back into the city once again. And it says that next day, after surviving that brutal beating, it says he was seeking to strengthen the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and wanting to strengthen their souls and encourage Christians to continue in the faith. Paul said this to them, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul said, let my life be a clear example. We must through many different tribulations, ultimately make our access and entrance into the King of God. It was just a part of the process. Heaven is a guarantee for every believer, but heaven is not now. Right now we live our life on this earth and there are struggles that will exist and therefore we must learn to live by faith in order to be sustained through the struggles that we go through while our feet are still on this planet. 
we must learn to live by faith in order to sustain ourselves in the midst of the struggles until we're in the presence of the Lord. And that is the point that Peter, if you notice here, is making and wanting to emphasize to these particular believers. This reality that the Christian must live with his eyes and his focus on heaven, but at the same time with his feet on the earth and continue to walk through this earth with his focus on heaven. And truth be told, times on earth are hard. They're difficult. It was difficult for these believers who are struggling and suffering. It's difficult for you and I. But the good news is, and the blessed hope, the living hope, is one day things will get better. And they'll get a whole lot better if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, for the Christian, this world is all the hell you will ever experience. For the unsaved person who rejects Jesus Christ and won't surrender to him, the exact opposite is true. This earth is the most heaven that they will ever experience because ultimately they will spend their eternity in hell as a result of rejecting Jesus. So one day we have that hope that things will get better than ever imagined and in the interim between earth and heaven, it's faith that sustains us. That's what Peter's saying here. It's that precious, valuable faith that we have is the thing that sustains us in the midst of the trials that we go through. And the previous verses, Peter had been describing this glorious salvation and the inheritance ahead. Let me just read 3 to 5 before we jump into 6 to refresh your memory. Peter had just said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again, the idea of their new birth, to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Notice, reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now with that as the backdrop, Peter then says, verse 6, just continuing in his thought, in this you greatly rejoice. Now those terms there, in this, refer back to what? Verses 3 to 5. To that glorious salvation and that heavenly hope and the inheritance ahead. Everything we just read and studied together in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 there. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Peter realized that though believers do endure difficulties on this earth... That the wonderful thing is that the spiritual realities that we can be aware of, the inheritance that's ahead of us, that God is keeping us by his power, that God's chosen us and he loves us and that we have a glorious heavenly hope ahead of us, that is something, those realities that can produce great joy internally in our hearts and souls even as externally we're going through difficulties and challenges at times. It's, see, it's the reflection of God's salvation that can be one of the things that really causes a renewal of joy in the soul of a child of God. One of the sacred gifts that the child of God has is they possess something to always celebrate in despite what they may go through during their times and seasons here on this earth. That's what Peter is getting to when he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Unlike the unsaved person, as a Christian, you always have something to rejoice in. 
You can rejoice in God. You can rejoice in what God's done for you. You can rejoice in what God will do for you. And you can rejoice that one day you will be with God forever and ever in eternal glory. And that enables us to have a peaceful, calm in our soul and the ability to have joy in our spirit and our disposition. Peter says, in this is what you greatly rejoice. So we can be struggling in one sense and at the same time rejoicing in what spiritual awarenesses that we have. I love the way Griffith Thomas addressed this section. I want to read to you. It's one of the commentators that I read. This is what he said in regards to this section. He said, note here that trials were the uh, were the circumstances, the underlying foundation, but distinguish carefully, it says, between happiness and joy. Happiness depends on what happens. It's connected with the happenings of life and circumstances. Joy is the underneath and independent of circumstances and is a condition of soul in relation to the Lord. Hence, it is possible to be joyful within even when circumstances are untoward and difficult. We can be joyful even when through circumstances we are unhappy. And then the Apostle Paul's quote there he takes from 2 Corinthians 6.10 where Paul said, remember, sorrowful yet rejoicing. That that is a possibility. That it is actually possible to simultaneously be sorrowful and yet be rejoicing in your soul. It's a wonderful, glorious privilege of the child of God that he has given to us. So Peter says here, in this, God's salvation, you greatly rejoice. And then he says the part we're not too excited about, verse 6, though now, oh no. (laughs) Where's he going to go with that? In this, you're greatly rejoicing what God's going to do in that future ahead of you. But he says, though now, for a little while, if need be, You have been grieved by various trials. So here Peter begins to describe sort of this dual experience of rejoicing in the glories of God while at the same time wrestling through the struggles of life here on earth. And he points out in verse 6 now how we are currently at times encountering trials. And that word trials that he uses there in verse 6 just refers to those unexpected and unpleasant circumstances that all of us at times are forced to go through here on this earth. It's the life difficulties that we must endure. It's the painful problems on occasion that we find ourselves experiencing, the earthly struggles. See, as you begin to navigate life, you realize that at times there are very pleasant seasons that you go through. At times when there are green pastures, right, and still waters. And when you go through pleasant seasons and you're in green pastures and the waters are still, you should enjoy those times. Those are wonderful. They're a blessing of the Lord and they're a reprieve from challenges and difficulties. And there are seasons when everything is pleasant and things are going well and it's smooth sailing. And yet there are also times when what we find ourselves walking through the dark valleys of the shadow of death. And we find ourselves struggling and and experiencing difficulties and challenges. And there are times when storms come crashing down upon our world out of nowhere sometime. And we find ourselves struggling at the oars and the wind is contrary to us and feeling like we're going to drown in the midst of what we're going through. And life and balance kind of has a blend of both. And we experience those things simultaneously. There are painful events in this life that we're forced to deal with. 
There are problems that you're going to go through. There are things that you have to face that are unpleasant. Some of them may just be everyday kind of realities of life on this earth. And at other times, there are really severe tragedies, really difficult and, and horrendous times of pain that we find ourselves going through whether it be the loss of a loved one and the grief and the sorrow and the pain and the adjustment that brings with it, or whether it's maybe the loss of a job, or maybe it's some financial crisis, or maybe just some major disappointment, something that we had ourselves so confident was going to come to pass, or, and then all of a sudden our dreams crash and the bottom falls out. Or maybe it's a failed marriage or someone abandons you and takes off and isn't there in the way that they promised that they would be. Or maybe it's some health issue. All of a sudden we get that call from the doctor. We find out that that health issue is touching our life. Or someone that we love that that health issue has come into their life. And whatever it may be, you can fill in the blanks. We all find ourselves experiencing trials at different times and seasons. And Peter tells us a few things here about trials, particularly in verse 6 and 7. And we'll really take the bulk of our time to meditate upon that. Notice first of all here in verse 6 that enduring trials is not expected to be easy. And I know that almost may sound sort of contradictory to say but I think it's important to take note of what Peter says in verse 6 that enduring trials is not expected to be an easy experience look what he says in the text there in verse 6 he says in verse 6 though now he says for a little while if need be you've been grieved by various trials you have been grieved by that word grieved when you look at it means to experience heaviness or to endure weighty sorrow it's indicating very clearly from the language that trials are hard and dealing with them is sincerely difficult and i think peter may be pointing this out by the spirit of god's leading for a reason because god does not expect us to go through a trial a tragedy, sorrow, or difficulty, and pretend that it does not hurt. Or to act somehow that, uh, as if we can deny the reality that it's really extremely hard what we're going through. And I point that out because, unfortunately, I really think that's what some people believe. I think even tragically, that's what some Christians can tend to believe even more sometimes than unbelievers. And don't get me wrong. Everybody has that potential of kind of, you know, I don't need help. I'm okay. And you know, the stiff upper lip and, 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 I, and I'm not going to indicate that I'm hurting or struggling or this is really, oh, it'll be okay. And, and we want to act like we're tough in our independent spirit. But I think sometimes if we're not careful, even as believers, we almost have this false perception that when our world is falling apart or we're struggling or we're hurting, that somehow it's spiritual to act like our role is to pretend like we're not really hurting and to use spiritual platitudes and praise the Lord's and, and everything's fine and God's got it under control instead of being open and honest and can I go further, real and not being super spiritual or being someone who acts in false humility that we're really hurting and that what we're going through is extremely hard and we may be scared and we may be grieving and really under a heavy load God intends for us Peter tells us here listen it's okay to acknowledge that you're really grieved by this Peter says here I can tell you're really grieved by what you're going through 
I can tell that you're under weighty sorrow and you're really under a very heavy pressure in your life. And let me liberate you this morning. Even if you're a Christian, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to admit your suffering. It's okay to acknowledge that you're hurting. To admit that something is difficult. To acknowledge to God it's hard. Read the Psalms. Listen to the way that so many times David expressed himself. It's okay to acknowledge to God you're suffering and it's hard and to tell him. And it's okay to acknowledge to other people and it does not make you less spiritual to acknowledge that you're really struggling or that you're going through a really hard season and you're having a tough time bearing up under what you're personally experiencing in your own individual trial. Quite honestly, that's called humility. That's being honest and humble before the Lord and before others. In fact, James says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. And he calls us when you're suffering, tell people you're suffering so they can pray for you, so they can bear up the burden with you and help you carry the load. Consider the life of Jesus, who was what? The perfect man. Jesus in the body of flesh demonstrated what the perfect man was like. And listen to Jesus' account here in Mark 14. It says they came to the place that was named Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Of course, that was when he said, Father, all things are possible for you. And he said, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not I will, but what thy will be done. And again, in that account, please take notice. Here's Jesus. He's at a time in his life when he is under tremendous duress. He's facing the sin of the world and the realities of all the suffering that he was going to endure within a few hours. And the weight and the stress that was bearing down upon Jesus psychologically and emotionally and physically was huge. It was heavy to the point where Jesus in his own admission says, my soul's exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And what does he do? He turns to Peter, James, and John, the three among the group he ministered with, which he seemed to have a, a deeper kind of level of connection, a, a close intimate relationship. And he says to them, will you please stay with me? Just stay with me. The only time you ever find Jesus ask the disciples for anything. He never asked them for money. He never asked them technically to do something. for. The only time Jesus ever asked the disciples for something was he asked for their companionship. Just their presence. He just says, I, just, I need you to be with me right now. I need your companionship. Would you just stay with me while I pray this through because I'm going through a really hard time. And you know what? It's okay to acknowledge to people that you need them when you're struggling. Jesus did. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. God's called us to bear one another's burdens and to do those things. And when someone is struggling, sometimes that's all they need is for you to just come and sit with them. You don't have to say anything. Just sit with them. Somebody waiting for a loved one to die, say, can I just come sit with you? Can I just sit with you in the, in the hospital room? Can I just sit with you for an hour, three hours, 12 hours, just to sit with you until they die? It's meaningful. 
Somehow there's something in that where we bear up the weight for someone. And it's okay to acknowledge we're struggling. Jesus himself did. And I appreciate that Peter says, I know you're grieved by these trials. God never intended us to pretend it was easy. He never expected us to portray that, but to indicate that it is hard and to work through it as we need to. And Peter then mentions some realities regarding trials in these verses. The first thing he talks about is the duration of trials. The duration of them. Look what he says in verse 6. Regarding trials, he says, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. Peter, talking about the duration of trials, he uses two words, now, and he uses little while, which reminds us of something important. Trials are not permanent. Praise God. They're temporary. They have a duration. They have a limitation. He uses words like now and little while. Point being this, please don't miss it, all trials do come to an end. I can't tell you when. It may be in this life and it may be in the life to come, but those trials, that trial, it will come to an end. Sometimes it's a season we go through. Sometimes it may be something that God permits during the journey here on earth, but every trial does come to an end. It will not last forever. It will not endure perpetually, and we need to remember that in the midst of trials and suffering because when we find ourselves sort of in the stormy seas and we're engulfed by the storm, what happens? Just like somebody, if they're out in the ocean and a storm whipped up and they get, you lose sight of the shore. And when you lose sight of the shore, you lose your bearings and your perspective gets off. And one of the most challenging things in trials is not only enduring them, but trying to maintain perspective while we're going through them. Because we lose sight of the shore and we get out of balance and our perspective and our evaluation gets all confused and then we find ourselves feeling hopeless and despairing and thinking that what we're going through is going to be perpetual and we can see no end in sight and we find ourselves struggling and almost throwing salt in our own emotional and physical wounds all the more. And the Bible is telling us here, listen, trials may be for now and they're a little while. For a little while, Peter says, you may be going through this trial, but it has a limitation. It's just for a duration, and I think we need to remember in the midst of trials this too, is that God has his eye on the clock, and he has his hand on the thermostat. Okay, God hasn't forgotten you. As he sees you in the midst of the trial, he's got his eye on the clock because he knows exactly how long the time frame will be, and he has his hand on the thermostat, and he can adjust it at any time. He's in complete control. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. So the duration of our trial, they're limited, they don't last forever. Then Paul, or Peter, excuse me as well, also mentions here the necessity, and I hate to use the term, but it's true, the necessity of trials in our lives. Look what he says as well in verse 6. There it is. He says, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, I wish, just like you, that it didn't say that. If need be, I don't like those two terms together in the Bible. 
trials and if need be, if need be. I think the New American Standard renders that if necessary. I don't know which one of them I dislike more. If need be, you get some trials. If necessary, you have various trials. The point is sometimes from God's perspective, it actually is needed for us to endure and experience a little bit of pressure, a little bit of hardship, some difficulty in our earthly life. Everything we endure and experience does have a purpose attached to it. Now, I will be the first to admit my own life and in your life at times, that reason may not be known at once. I find sometimes the reason for the trial or the difficulty may not even be known in this lifetime. It may not be till we cross the veil and get on the other side of eternity when things are then fully known that we understand the dynamics behind why we went through maybe some of the things that we go through. But God is always in control because he's a sovereign God. And God has an amazing ability to use pain and problems and difficulties and even tragedies in a constructive way to accomplish good things in our lives, to cultivate it for something fruitful as we go through it. And there may be many reasons that we actually might need a trial or it may be necessary to go through a trying time. For example, to protect us from spiritual failure. For that, I would encourage you to reference 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Sometimes it's necessary and we need a trial to protect us from spiritual failure, from shipwrecking our own faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about a thorn in the flesh that he received from the Lord, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And what did Paul say? He said, I was receiving revelations from the Lord and God was using Paul and Paul was receiving insights and he was thriving spiritually. And then he said, lest I be exalted above measure. Here's what Paul is saying. God saw that so I did not get proud and arrogant. Because boy, Paul understood I must have the potential to get arrogant. I must have the potential to be inclined towards being prideful. And for God to keep me tempered and buffeted, he let me have some pain in my life. And that pain, he said, was the thing that kept me in a place of humility. It kept me in a way where I was dependent and it protected me from shipwrecking my own faith. Another reason we may need a trial at times is just to keep us close to the Lord, to keep us trusting Sometimes is it not true when we go through a problem or a difficulty that in the midst of that, God kind of burns away your self-confidence a little bit? You know, we have such an independent spirit as human beings and we can be so self-sufficient before we come to Jesus and that can carry over even after we come to the Lord. And that sort of independent, self-sufficient spirit, I don't need help from nobody, this, that, and we might even say it consciously, but sometimes that's a, Lord, I'll call you when the crisis comes. And sometimes the Lord says, man, you are really self-sufficient and you are so independent. And sometimes the Lord will let a little pressure or pain or heat come into our lives in such a way he'll permit something and he'll use it constructively to just humble our spirit and to burn away that self-confidence. Sometimes another reason that we need a trial in our life, thirdly, is to bring us back to the Lord. To bring us back to the Lord. If need be, God will allow a trial to bring you back to the Lord if maybe you've wandered off. Again, think of what Jesus talked about when he told the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son who left his father? I want everything now and I don't need what you're offering. I want to be independent. I'm going to go do my own thing. The father gave him his inheritance prematurely. He wasn't ready for it yet. 
But he knew he was going to take the world on. And what he went off, he squandered all his wealth, he was irresponsible, he lived like a pig, and he ended up finding himself in a foreign land. All the money ran out, a difficult famine struck the land, and he got so hungry, he hired himself out to work for a pig farmer, and eventually he found himself on his hands and knees eating the very pig slop that he was feeding the pigs himself. And interesting, the text says, Jesus telling the story, that when he was there in the pig pen, eating the pig slop, it says, and he came to his senses. And see, sometimes the Lord has to allow difficulty, struggle, and tr to let a person come to their senses. And when he came to his senses, what do you do? He said, what am I doing here? I need to go back to my father. And see, sometimes the Lord will allow pain, problems, trials, and the world to fall apart on someone to just bring them back to their senses and to show them, you need to get back to the Lord. You need to return to the Lord. And God will permit. God sees sometimes this person needs a trial. It's necessary. That's what it's going to, it's necessary for this person to go through that if they're ever going to return to me. And, and God cares about the relationship. He'll let them. He'll let a person, he'll let us go through something to sort of bring us back if we take our detours and backslide. Another reason we may need a trial, it may be necessary as well, to me, is sometimes just to correct us when we've been in sin and error. I think Jonah's a perfect example of that. Think of the life of Jonah. Jonah's storm was what? It was a self-inflicted trial. Now, I hate trials, but I really get bummed with myself when they're self-inflicted. When I cause my own trial. But Jonah, he was disobedient, he was rebellious, and as a result, what did God do? God had to send a consequence for his poor decisions. And God had to allow consequences, difficulty, to come into Jonah's life to again do what? To teach him, to train him. And consequences are incredible teachers. They're incredible teachers. Incredible. And so God says, you know what, hey, Make your choice. Go ahead. I'm not, you make your choice. See how that's going to work out for you. Try it. So Jonah did. He made his choice, disobeyed, ran away from the Lord, and God just let him experience the consequences of his own wrong choices. And God let him see, if you make those choices and those decisions and you become independent and turn away from me, I'll show you what life is like when you rebel against me and my word. And so God let the trial be the thing that was the consequence to correct him and to teach him and to train him how to make better decisions. One final reason I think it may be necessary and needed to receive a trial in our lives at times as Christians is even just to shape us and mature our character. Because is it not true that we grow up through trials? When we go through difficulties, God hones our character and he prepares us sometimes. Like fire, he tempers our character. Romans 5 says it this way, We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. See, in some ways, trials and difficulties of life are kind of like the fertilizer for the roots of character. Think about some of the people you know who have some of the greatest character. A lot of times they're people who've struggled. They're people who've gone through a few things. They've experienced some difficulty and that's where the depth of the roots of character have come from because God's let them go through things because the Bible says that those things produce perseverance and perseverance produces character. James says the same thing this way, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. 
And let patience have its perfect work that you may perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So see, sometimes God wanting to develop you, God seeing the potential of your life, and he says, man, I want to really use her. I want to use you. I want to grow you. I want to mature you and help you to develop and become a more complete person. God says, the only way I can do that is, is I kind of got to let you go through the furnace a little bit because it'll mature you. It'll deepen your roots and it'll give you more character that I can build upon and do the things. So when you're struggling, listen, God may be just investing. Maybe God's investing in your life because he sees the potential of what's down the road. Thirdly, we notice from verse 6 as well, the nature of trials. And Peter mentions the word various trials. The term there speaks of many colored. And what Peter says when he says, if need be, you may go through various trials, multicolored. The idea is trials come in all different forms and types. They come in all shapes and sizes. Again, as I said earlier, it can be a, a health issue, a financial issue, a relationship problem. It can be some life tragedy. It can just be the struggles of everyday life experiences. They're varied. They come in many different shapes and forms. Their intensity and severity may vary. Some trials may be just you know, difficult. And, and they're, maybe they're 10 pound in their weight. And then other trials are like, a hundred pound weights that we carry around. Their, their severity may vary. They come in different seasons and different stages in our lives. They, they last. Some trials are really short. Maybe it's something that's just a, a day or two that's really difficult. And then other times we may go through the duration of a trial that lasts a little bit longer. Maybe we're in a trial for a week or for 20 weeks or for two years. They vary. And I say that to remind you of this this morning. No two trials are alike. They have variation. And in light of that, can I encourage you as well, be careful of comparing and specifically be careful of judging wrongly other people as they're going through their own personal trials. Well, what's the matter with him? I mean, come on. It's not that big of a deal. What is he, a wimp? What's the matter with her? Why does she keep crying all the time? She's always crying. What does it matter? It's not that big of a deal. To you, it's not. You have no idea what they're experiencing. I have no idea exactly how that's affecting them. God's wired them different than me. And I have no full disclosure and awareness of exactly how hard that is for them. There's variations. And we need to be careful of that. We need to give grace and compassion in those kind of situations because trials have great variety to them in all of our lives. So he says, we've been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, notice he goes on, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Take notice from verse 7 here that one of the most important purposes of going through trials, going through tribulation and difficulty and problems, many times one of the most important purposes is the development of our faith. No matter what we go through and experience, whether again, it's just kind of a common everyday struggle that we all go through, or maybe whether it's the severe tragedy and crisis that comes into our life, Indeed, in all those things, God wants to help. God wants to comfort you when you struggle. God wants to give compassion and help you through your difficulties. Yet God also overrules. And he productively takes what you are experiencing and he uses it for a constructive purpose. And I'll tell you this, the ultimate accomplishment that God 
can fulfill in any trial or problem or difficulty is the cultivation and the development of our own faith in our soul. And hear me this morning in these four words, faith is very important. Faith is very important. Hebrews 11 tells us this, without faith it is impossible to please God. That should indicate it's pretty important. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Oh, I please God. I do lots of good things. God goes, so? So does everybody. And that's not the way I've called you to relate to me. I didn't ask for your works. I asked for your belief, your surrender, your trust. Without faith, the Bible says, it is impossible to please God. Think about it for just a moment. Faith is how we experience salvation initially. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Aren't you glad that salvation is a free gift that must be received by faith rather than something we earn and achieve? Because then for all of heaven, we would have to listen to everybody around us brag. And we'd probably be the most annoying one. What would you do to get here? <laughs> Let me tell you what I did to get here. No, nobody in heaven can, so that no one can boast. God appreciates the good things we do. Once we've accepted Jesus Christ by faith and we're a Christian, then God opens up a reward account for us. That account doesn't exist before we're saved. You can't just add enough good works and think God's going to, well, okay, you have done enough, forget faith. The deposits you've made, I'll accept that instead. No, once you're saved by faith, then an account is opened spiritually. But we're saved by faith, undeservedly. By faith, we believe and trust that we have to be saved and we accept salvation by faith. We accept Jesus Christ by faith. And then afterwards, faith is how we continually relate to God. The way that we relate to God as Christians is by faith. We experience His plan by steps of faith. We experience His promises by faith. We experience the power of God in our life by faith. And faith is the hinge upon everything spiritual comes into our life. So God, therefore, may determine, listen, that a person may need a trial in order to cultivate their faith. I guarantee in this room this morning there is more than one person that God allowed you to go through maybe a difficulty or a hard time, and that was the thing that brought you to surrender to Jesus Christ. So God says... I need to allow your life to get difficult enough because you are so stubborn or hard-headed or so. So God will bring a person to a place where ultimately it's the pressure upon them that lets, I surrender, all right, Lord, save me. I need you. And sometimes God will see that in order for a person to put faith in Jesus Christ and accept him, that that person needs to struggle to even come to Christ and get saved. That's how many of us came to the Lord, is it not? And in the same way, sometimes God may want to develop greater depths of faith and spiritual maturity. So like a muscle, he'll exercise our faith a little bit because he wants to see us grow. The Bible here, notice, compares our faith, take notice, to what? In verse 7, it compares our faith to gold. It's a comparison. It compares our faith to gold. What is gold? Gold is valuable. It's durable. It's a precious commodity. Gold is something that is useful to acquire things. It enriches a person. And the Bible is saying our faith is more valuable than gold. Notice that's what he says in verse 7 there. He says, your faith, which is much more precious 
than gold. It's even more precious than gold. Faith makes a person way more wealthy than all the gold on the earth. Faith helps a person acquire way more things than any heaps and amounts of gold ever could. Faith is more precious, he says, than even gold which perishes. 1 John 5 says this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith, our faith. And notice to illustrate how God develops our personal faith, he refers to that refining process that gold would go through in the fire in that ancient day where what they would do as gold was tested by fire, they would put the gold into a, a, a smelting pot. They would heat up the furnace and as they would heat up the fiery furnace, the gold would have all the impurities rise up to the surface and then they would slag off of the top all the impurities from the gold and they would repeat that process. They turn up the fire, more impurities would come out and they would take off more of it. And the way they said that the, the, the person knew that the gold was then pure and ready was that they could look down into the gold and they could see their reflection. And see, that process made the gold reveal its condition, its, its, its unhealthy things came out of it, and at the same time, that process was a process that caused the gold to be strengthened and become more valuable. And Peter is saying here, this is kind of like what God does with our faith through fiery trials. He does the same thing with you and I. Isaiah 48.10 says this, God says, Behold, I have refined you. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. See, this is why God may permit and God may even plan for a fiery trial to be in our life to do the same thing for us like what happens with gold, to prove or reveal the genuine and sincere quality of our faith. Because let's be very honest. When we go through a difficulty and we are squeezed, just like when you squeeze a sponge, you ever see a wet sponge before and maybe it's laying there on the counter and you pick it up and you squeeze the sponge, you know something's in it, but you don't really know, is it, is it Kool-Aid the kids spilled? Is it milk? Is it water? But when you squeeze the sponge, what's inside comes out, right? And same way with our lives, quite honestly. When we find ourselves squeezed, that's when all of a sudden we find out what's sincerely on the inside. And when we go through a fiery trial, the impurities and the reality of, of the genuineness of our commitment to Christ, it kind of rises to the surface. And we learn things about ourselves. I don't think God discovers anything, but we discover things about ourselves. All of a sudden, in the midst of a difficulty, we have to answer the question, wait a minute, am I a fair weather follower of Jesus or am I truly committed to Christ? And I'm willing to follow Christ no matter what I go through or what curves life throws at me. And we find that out. It's revealed the condition of our faith. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. In Jesus' ministry, John chapter 6, one occasion he began to say difficult things. The stakes started going up higher to follow Christ. And at one point Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, do you want to leave also? Because many of them were departing from Christ. And in John chapter 6, Jesus said, do you want to go away? And Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah, it's hard, but there ain't nothing better than this. Where are we going to go? And sometimes in our life, God will allow us, like in the furnace of affliction, to have what's within us brought to the surface. And as well, just like the gold, that process of taking off the impurities, taking off the impurities, it made the gold more strong. It made the gold more pure and have greater value. And God does the same in our lives. It forces us to exercise our faith like a muscle so that it grows and it strengthens. 
our faith gets worked out because when we are in hard times, we're forced to places of greater reliance upon God. And we find ourselves in humility and desperation, having our impurities come to the surface and God's removing things out of us that need to get out of us anyway. And at the same time, like metal or glass that's tempered by the heat, God is strengthening our faith and causing us to be stronger in our relationship with him. Job says it this way, Job 23.10. He says, I, he knows the way that I take. He has tested me and I ca- shall come forth as gold. And this morning, if God has been testing you and you have found yourself in a fiery, difficult season, or maybe you're in the middle of one, listen, the wonderful thing is God is cleansing things out of you and God is making you more genuine. He's making you more sincere. He's making you confront things, but not so that you might be condemned, but confront things so that you could be cultivated to be a more genuine, sincere Christian and say, you know what, like Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. I will trust him. I will have confidence in him no matter what I go through. I will keep my hand in the hand of Jesus. Peter says that these things happen that they may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is saying, listen, what ultimately happens is God lets all these things happen to really prepare us for the day of the revelation of Jesus to meet Jesus. If I can say it this way simply, everything that we go through on this earth, honestly, it really is all intended just to get us ready to meet Jesus and to get us ready for all of eternity so that our faith in him may cause praise and honor and glory as we come through the other side and the Lord is glorified by our confidence in him. Peter says, verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Take notice, Peter was impressed with these Christians. Why? Because unlike him, they had never physically seen the Lord Jesus with their natural eye. Peter saw Jesus, right? He walked around with Jesus and and ministered with him. He had direct contact with the physical body of the Lord Jesus when he was here. These believers Peter's writing to, Peter says, verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. Remember Jesus in John chapter 20 said to Thomas, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas, great that you believe in me. But you've also seen me. But he says, there's a special blessing for those who've never seen me with their eye, but yet they love me just as much. And Peter was astonished that these believers here loved Jesus as much as he did, and they never saw Jesus with their natural eye. And this was something that really impressed Peter, this marvelous mystery. Is it not true for us that though we have never seen him, we love him? We love someone so much, we love Jesus who we have never seen with our physical eye. We're in love with someone, we have met someone and have a relationship with someone that our eye has never beheld. And yet it's a marvelous mystery, but it's a very authentic reality. And if you know Jesus Christ, you know exactly what that means. It's a mystery, but it is an absolute reality. And I'll tell you, people before they meet the Lord Jesus, they don't grab this. You love, well, you so love this Jesus, you never even met him. Oh, I've met him. I've met him. You love this Jesus, you, never, you don't even see him. I see him every day. I talk to him every day. I hear him every day. And by faith, I've met him. And by faith, I love him. And I live with him. And I experience him. And this is what Peter is saying here. You've not seen him. 
and that you love him. And he says, though now you do not see him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Though now you don't see him, notice one day we will see him face to face. The culmination of that's coming. And he says, that's why you rejoice with, with joy, he says, that is inexpressible. The idea is you can't articulate it. And again, that's what I'm trying to say. You try and articulate to someone who doesn't know Jesus how you're in love with this person that you've never met. And because they're not exercising the same faith, it's confusing to them. That's okay. It's normal. It's inexpressible. Look what Peter says in closing in verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, it is faith that is the very thing that lets us receive the most important thing that God is offering. And again, what's the most important thing that God's offering? He says in verse 9, the salvation of your souls. That's the culmination of obtaining the whole reason that we have faith, the salvation of our souls, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, being born again, being delivered from sin and Satan and knowing that we're going to heaven. That's the culmination of our faith. Hear me this morning. We should not and we do not believe in Jesus just to obtain a problem-free life. God help us. The Lord Jesus is not some genie in a bottle. He's not. The Lord Jesus is a savior for our souls. That's why we believe in Jesus. Prosperity gospel and this name it and claim it stuff is just absolutely lunacy. It is ridiculous. Can I ask you a question this morning? Why do you believe and trust in Jesus? Do you believe and trust in Jesus just to have a problem-free life? The reason we should believe and trust in Jesus, what are you looking to receive? It should be the salvation of your soul. That matters more than anything. That's the thing nobody can take away from you. There's no guarantees in this life. Try talking to someone living in a third world country saying, if you trust Jesus Christ and have faith, all of a sudden your poverty will go away, you'll be healthy, you'll never have problems again. That, that's lunacy. We trust Jesus and we have faith in Jesus to receive salvation of our souls. That is the most important thing to receive and that is the most important reason to believe. To have our soul delivered from what ultimately could come upon it. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world.